everyone. This is the Shelbourne Knee Center Podcast. This is Dr. Benner, and we're here tonight for episode 28, and we're going to be discussing another topic as kind of a counterpoint to, to last week's topic. Uh, as always, if you want to hit up our social media, we have Facebook and uh, YouTube pages for the Shelbourne Knee Center Podcast. We have Instagram and Twitter handles at the SKC Podcast. If you'd like to email us a question or a comment, uh, you can do that at the SKC podcast at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear from you as always. If you can uh, follow us and give us a, give us a like and a comment uh, for people to come behind you that would like to check out the podcast. We'd appreciate that as well. And before we get into tonight's topic, which will be on mechanical alignment for total knees, go back to episode 27 for last week. We had on Dr. Stephen Howell from California discussing kinematic alignment uh, in total knees. So I do think this one's going to be a good counterpoint for that episode. So if you haven't gone back to, to last week's, go ahead and listen to last week's before this week talking about mechanical alignment. Tonight, we have another great guest and another mentor of mine that has been a very influential person for me in learning how to do total knees. He's the vice president of the orthopedic service line at Northwell Health. He's the director of surgical services at Long Island Jewish Valley Stream Hospital. He was an attending at the Insall Scott Kelly Institute, where I did my fellowship, which is where I got to know him well. And he's now the fellowship director for the Adult Reconstruction Fellowship at Lenox Hill Hospital in New York City. He's also the past president of the prestigious Knee Society. So tonight's guest, Dr. Gil Scuderi. Dr. Scuderi. Thank you for joining us. We really appreciate this. Hey, Rodney, how you doing tonight? Looking forward to having a, a good discussion. I'm sure it'll be a lively one. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we heard from Dr. Howell last week. And as we were talking about before we got started here, something that I'm sure you've talked to Steve uh, with extensively in the past. And I think I've seen you on the podium having that discussion with him before. So we're, we're, uh, we're looking forward to this as well. So, uh, you know, people talk about mechanical alignment in the same way they do with, you know, ACL tunnel placement that, that always kind of makes me laugh is that uh, they talk about mechanical alignment as if it's old fashioned. It's outdated. It's conventional versus anatomic. And uh, you know, for me, it's still the goal every case. It's what I learned from you and what what, uh, what I know you learned as well. So, uh, you know, where take us back to your training. Who taught you mechanical alignment and why has that always been your goal? You know, Rodney, it's, it's always good, uh, you know, to go back where all this started, you know, and uh, with John Insel, if you think about it, I always like mm-hmm. to uh, talk about John and have everybody remember uh, John Insel is one of the pioneers in the uh, one of the fathers of a total knee arthroplasty. And John really was a proponent of the mechanical alignment, you know, getting the uh, uh, implants in the proper position, restoring the alignment of the knee, and that was able to uh, deal with the um, successful outcome of total knee arthroplasty. You know, so it does go back to John. I mean, this has been around for uh, 40, probably going on 45 years now. Mechanical alignment has really been the gold standard. You know, and I'm, I'm really amazed how um, everyone looks at the uh, mechanical alignment as possibly a mortal sin, and we need to move to more uh, anatomic alignment. You know, I'm sure, uh, you know, Steve presented a very strong case for kinematic alignment, but uh, I think mechanical alignment is, uh, is the gold standard, well proven in our registry uh, data. So with you talking about being the gold standard, in a nutshell, what is the advantage of mechanical alignment for total knee arthroplasty? Mechanical alignment is uh, is very beneficial because you're not cherry picking or lemon dropping your cases. I mean, you can handle all types of deformities, you know, severe varus and valgus deformities, fixed deformities. It's really a clear understanding. And I always said that you need to understand the identity of the knee. And what do I mean by that? You know, every knee has its own soft tissue identity. Every knee has its own bony identity. 
and every needs a little bit different. I mean, I think that's why some of the proponents of a more personalized approach, you know, look at needs a, a different. But I think that with the mechanical alignment, you can, can address all deformities. You have to be prepared to handle the soft tissues, especially with uh, fixed uh, uh, coronal deformity, a fixed varus or a fixed valgus deformity. You know, don't be afraid to uh, release some soft tissue to get the proper alignment. You know, John Hintz always said, thou shalt not varus. And now all of a sudden with uh, kinematic alignment, uh, we're looking at uh, putting the knees in a little bit of varus alignment. I'm just concerned yes. about the long-term durability. We haven't seen it yet. Um, and yeah. I'd like to see what the long-term track record is going to be. Yeah, I mean, that's something that I know I, I heard you talking about, each each knee having its own soft tissue character or soft tissue, uh, you know, uh, soft tissue footprint, I guess, that we have to that we have to work around. Uh, I, I did a case today. A guy had a 16 degree varus knee, a 16 degree flexion contracture. And after my my normal cuts, um, the, the, I, I would, you know, this moves into a little bit in robotics also, but I took uh, about nine millimeters from the distal femur. I only had seven and five from my posterior sections. I always measure all my section, all my resections, just like you do. And, uh, you know, I still had, even with that fixed varus deformity, I did a, did a good medial release to try to get that balanced. And it was still looser laterally than I was comfortable leaving that way. So I ended up switching to constraint. And uh, with the, with the PRK system, I was, I even had to use use a plus component despite taking really minimal posterior resections uh, I still had to use a plus component to get good flexion balancing and I thought back to if I had done this case with conventional instrumentation there is no way in hell I would have made those same cuts and I also and I certainly with kinematic alignment would not have been able to get this knee balanced with symmetric resections from the distal and posterior femur um, so uh, you know I, I think that uh, that that experiences like that just make me wonder how people who do kinematic alignment would handle knees such as that and, uh, and, and whether or not they would deviate from it. So I, I think you kind of already answered this, but is there any case where you do deviate from mechanical alignment? I know some people talk about mechanical alignment. Well, it's a, it's a one size fits all, uh, thing for the knee and they don't necessarily think that's good. Uh, but for me, I don't necessarily deviate from it and I, I doubt you do either. You know, I really don't, um, you know, Rodney, because they still follow the basic principles, you know, that, you know, I taught you, hopefully, and it sounds like you still follow most of the principles, you know, that, uh, you know, we've discussed uh, mm -hmm. a while back. You know, I do a, you know, a bit of a hybrid technique, you know, with uh, measure resection, gap balancing. But in order to do that appropriately, you need to have the appropriate mechanical alignment. I need my my tibia component at uh, 90 degrees at that neutral uh, coronal plane. Um, and I think that's important because that's really the foundation, you know, for the, uh, for the arthroplasty, you know, in all honesty, if, if I go back and I look and I still remember, uh, you know, some of my early days as a fellow with John Insel back in the, I hate to say this, the uh, late eighties, you know, uh, <laughs> don't want to say the number, but yeah, I don't want to say then. the number. I'm just going to say late eighties. <laughs> Um, is that, um, you know, we looked at, I looked at the x-rays and, you know, where we say we were in mechanical alignment, you know, it was like one to two degrees of varus in the tibia, you know, and that's with conventional instrumentation, you know, mm -hmm. and I still think my eye is pretty good. You know, I always uh, like to compete with the robot and see, you know, how accurate am I with my eye and my spacer and my drop rod compared to what, you know, technology is now allowing us to do, but I really don't deviate. You know, I really feel that I need to have a good stable foundation. I want to get the right forces across the joint, you know, try to decrease any mechanical stresses on the implant by having the appropriate mechanical alignment. 
I think what happens, you know, with uh, some of these, you know, functional alignments, kinematic alignments, personalized alignments, you know, again, you know, as I said earlier, there's a lot of different names with different parameters within it. You're changing both the uh, coronal and sagittal plane, you know, and that joint line, you know, the, the obliquity of the joint line that these guys are trying to accept concerns me, you know, and uh, I still don't know what the guardrails are, you know, within these uh, these alignment techniques. And that's why I go back to mechanical alignment and don't be afraid to handle the soft tissues. You know, you need to do a release, you do a release. Yeah, I mean, and, and I, I one of my one of my hesitancies uh with kinematic alignment is uh you know i hear them say about mechanical alignment that we're making assumptions that everybody wants to be at neutral mechanical alignment and that they think that that's potentially something that they want to avoid and they want to have a more personalized approach and to quote put the knee where it wants to be uh and and for me i'm i just struggled to know what what they really mean by that and when i hear dr howell talk and i and i asked him this question specifically uh he he discussed when they used to look at mris and ct scans before their total knees that they they kind of made i think they made an assumption he can i'm sure he'll correct me if i'm wrong but uh, of two millimeters of articular surface wear and that he didn't think there was any bony wear that had to be accounted for and to me that makes the same kind of assumption that you and i are making when we take any knee that's at any alignment and we try to put femoral head over the middle of the knee over the middle of the ankle so um you know that's kind of how I feel. And I was, I was interested to hear your, your thoughts on that as well. Uh, you know, are there, are there assumptions that KA makes, uh, with that technique that, that you don't believe are, are, are ones that you want to make and, and how those compare with assumptions that we make putting everybody at the same alignment? Yeah. I think the assumption that they make is there are no bony deformities, you know, really associated with it. They're really, you know, doing, you know, very early arthritic knees. I mean, it's really hard to do a, um, a knee with a severe deformity in bone loss and kinematic alignment. You know, when you you and I both know that you get a uh, a fixed varus deformity of uh, 15 degrees or more, you know you have a bony defect in the posterior medial tibia. And how do you deal with mm-hmm. that? I mean, really, when I see, you know, Steve's cases, you know, honestly, Steve does a great job. He gets great results. He's published extensively on it. He probably has published about 80% of the literature on kinematic alignment. Um, and he does get good results. But I really have never seen the severe deformities that we tackle uh, mm-hmm. in Steve's cases, the severe valgus deformity. You know, um, you know, there is bone loss, you know, on these cases. And how do you manage mm-hmm. that? And how do you determine the position of the uh, the tibial component? And how does that drive your femoral component? So um, I'm uh, I'm still a big believer of uh, getting that uh, mechanical alignment correct. And I really don't uh, don't deviate. You know, what, what's surprising is, you know, surgeons sometimes just want to deal with the deformity by a little adjustment in the bone cut and accept that obliquity, you know, on the joint line. But why are they so fearful of releasing a you know a tight ligament? Mm-hmm. You know that that's uh, just just as easy. You know we've had good clinical success both for fixed varus and valgus deformities with soft tissue balancing, and the gap balancers are doing that. Mm-hmm. You know that's that's been a standard uh, technique uh, for years. So, you know, yeah, they may call us dinosaurs because we're still doing the same technique. But, you know, listen, we're, we're open minded. You know, I'm open minded. You know, I yeah. think that we need to look at, you know, how can we improve patient outcomes? You know, how can we improve patient satisfaction? 
I really don't think personally that, you know, imp improvement of patient satisfaction with uh, a couple of degrees more of varus in the tibia is, or a little bit more valgus in the femur and a little obliquity joint line is really going to change patient satisfaction. There's more, there are other variables you know, to patient satisfaction. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. And what I can't, I have to confess that I, I don't remember the specific study. I know we reviewed it at one of our research meetings and uh, Jim Ballard, when we had him on talking about, uh, talking about robotics referenced a study in which they talked, they looked at their results based on whether or not people had soft tissue releases and the people that did not have soft tissue releases had better, had better outcome scores. And, and, and I don't, I don't, I don't doubt that if we if we put somebody's knee in a way that maintained their alignment and didn't release their soft tissues versus doing a large correction and releasing those soft tissues, I don't doubt that it probably would feel better temporarily. I mean, that's more of a long term problem, I would think as well. I mean, uh, it, and I wish I, I wish I had that reference. I could remember which where that was, but I think that's the, some interesting data that we need in the future. Is what are the guardrails around that? You know, if I if I throw it up on my, you know, I'm using robotics. I don't know if you are or not, but when I throw one up, that's got you know. 20 on one side and 18 and a half on the other side, where if I could tilt that into a degree or two of varus, maybe all of a sudden those become equal without having to do any soft tissue balancing. I saw that when I went and did a, uh, when I went and did a, an observation and, and I thought, I, you know, I, that's something I hadn't really thought about doing. Uh, but I'm with you, you know, a, a degree or two of varus in order to not have to do a release. I don't think it's a bad idea. Um, I just think that's something that, that, that the literature needs to, needs to give us some, some guardrails and some, some concrete results on what to use and what not to. Yeah, I mean, I agree. And I mean, I and I, I truly believe that um, looking at these more personalized approaches is uh, something that, you know, will be ongoing. I'm very supportive of it. I'm supportive of, you know, research to determine the ideal parameters, you mm -hmm. know, for that more personalized approach. And that's what I like to call it more than, you know, kinematic alignment, inverse kinematic, restricted kinematic. I mean, there's so many different names. Um, it's almost like the Tower of Babel a little bit, you know, with all the names. Uh, but realistically, what they're trying to do is, you um, you know, address the knee with a more personalized approach for both bone resection and uh, and soft tissue balance and looking at the uh, pre-arthritic alignment of the knee uh, to try to restore the ideal environment, you know, for the mm -hmm. implant. But, you know, and I think with the advent of, you know, more modern components, more shapes and sizes to better fit the anatomy and, you know, more advanced technologies, you know, this debate's going to uh, continue. Um, and I think this personalized approach to a knee orthoplasty is going to continue to gain more traction. But to your point, too, is we really need to know what the ideal parameters are. Because if you look at most of the literature, you know, the parameters are very different. And we're not comparing apples to apples. Yeah. You know. And here, here, well, I guess here's here's my soapbox about about alignment that I that I alluded to that I wanted to save to ask you in the podcast. Uh, they it, when when we look at the data on how much does alignment matter, we look at Merrill Ritter's data and in the group out of out of Mooresville from from our area that said that alignment outliers had worse outcomes, more higher failure rates, and we look at Mark Pagnano and the Mayo Group's data uh, with a pretty large internal registry for them that showed that their outliers did not have a difference in survivorship. So it doesn't seem like we can even 
figure out exactly how much alignment really matters in the long term. And then we have people like you and I who like our parallel and perpendicular ways uh, of mechanical alignment and Steve Howell and other people who do kinematic alignment who think a different target is the right thing to do. So one of my frustrations is we can't decide how much we think alignment really matters. We can't decide what our target is. What we can do as surgeons then is look at any post-op x-ray. We put the knee in any alignment we want and say, somebody probably thinks that's a good idea. You know, I put this knee in three degree, three, four degrees of Eris, you know, the kinematic alignment surgeons think that's good. Uh, you know, I put this one in, you know, a little too much this way. Well, so this person says that might actually be a good thing. So I, I feel like, it, it, it's a little frustrating to me, and I think I think we do this as surgeons a lot, where we try to come up with as many ideas as we can, with the hopes that then we'll be able to support anything. And and, and I look look at research a little bit differently. That let's let's put all these things to the test from a research perspective and really let the results guide us. And I'm with you. If, if there are studies that come out that start to get into the finer details of this, and there emerges to some reproducible. Uh, ad- advantages with with uh, kinematic alignment versus mechanical. I'm all for it, um, but for now, it just seems like there are so many ups and downs and sideways and forwards and backwards that it's it's kind of tough to make to to make headway on and, and come up with a with with the best plan. You know, I think um, you have to look at it in this this manner. One is we have to look at the long term durability of the implant. We know that. Um, in our survivorship data, and if you even look at the uh, joint registry data, we reported on the uh, 20-year survivorship of uh, posterior stabilized, you know, design with John Insel, you know, the IB, uh, the IB2, and you know, durability of that implant 20 years, you know, 90%, 30 years, you know, anywhere between 65 and 80%. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's pretty good, you know, long-term durability. So we want to yeah. look at the joint registry data, you know, and see, and most of the registry data with longer term follow-up is mechanical alignment, right? Because the kinematic alignment, the personalized alignment techniques are more recent uh, uh, techniques and more recent data that's being entered. So we don't have the long-term data. So one is durability of the implant. And then two, as I mentioned earlier, it's, it's patient satisfaction. You know, are we making these patients happier? Yes, you can allude to the fact maybe a little less soft tissue release, but I'll be honest with you, I'm doing a lot less soft tissue releases than I did before. I think I have better implant uh, shapes and sizes, uh, so I get a better fit. You know, and we have to realize that, uh, you know, patient satisfaction is really meeting expectations. You know, can they get back to doing things that they want to do? When we designed the Nice Society score, the more recent modern score, a little over a decade ago, we looked specifically at uh, common activities of daily living, more advanced activities, and then patient-specific activities because patients want to do things that are a little bit different than others that may put a little bit more demand. And we felt that that was an important consideration to take mm-hmm. into when you're looking you know, at outcomes. And there are also other socioeconomic variables that you know, come into play. What about you know, the patient's coping abilities? You know, what about their anxiety? You know, the patient, you know, and that quote unquote 20% dissatisfied patient. I published this study um, recently, uh, earlier this year, it's in JOA, uh, looking at uh, the fact that if you look at the literature with the current studies, 
only about 10% of the patients are really dissatisfied. You take out the complications and you take out a lot of the variables and just look at the patients, you know, that are unhappy with their knee. And it's not that 20%. You know? Yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you on that. I think, you know, if I think what's all pretty clear that if somebody has an infection, they're not going to be as happy with the outcome of their operation. Right. If they have, they fall and they have a periprosthetic fracture, they're not going to be as happy as they could be with the outcome of their operation. Uh, but I think what all of us are worried about is that x-ray that we that looks good and feels bad. I think that's what everybody's trying to get after. And I agree with you. I think that number of dissatisfaction with an x-ray that in a physical exam and, 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 and infectious workup, et cetera, that all looks pretty normal and and they're just and they're just not happy. I have I have a lot of thoughts on that as well. But I don't know if that's probably outside the scope of this talk uh, or this discussion. Um, but uh, but I, but I'm with you on that. I don't I don't know that that number's uh, actually that exceedingly high. You, you you mentioned soft tissue releases, and I was wondering about that myself. I'm I'm glad you brought that up. Um, when when I when I uh, worked with you, it was just at the very beginning of Persona. You we just put a few of those in right at the end of my fellowship. And I know in my own experience, I started out with LPS Flex for a couple of years after I was in practice before I jumped in on uh, on Persona. And I, and I wondered with a change in a more uh, modern system with uh, a, a wider array of uh, of combinations that we can utilize, whether that has changed your, your ligament releases more than, or, or in addition to, uh, you know, all these thoughts about kinematic alignment. Yeah. So one thing that has come up, you know, since, uh, you know, as you brought up persona, I always like to try to keep things generic, but, um, you know, cause obviously I'm biased being one of the designers mm -hmm. of the implant, but, uh, we've got some recent publications, uh, looking at, uh, restoring the anatomy of the femur. You know, historically we've always been anterior referencing or posterior referencing. I'm trying, and I've coined the term anatomic referencing at this point, because, I think that with the uh, two minimally increments sizing and a couple other, you know, um, devices out there, femoral components from other companies too, besides the Zerma Biomet Persona, you know, that mm -hmm. have closer incremental sizes. But with Persona, with the two millimeter increments, I can restore the anatomy of that distal femur, and I both have the standard and narrow components, and that addresses the. Um, femoral component flush to the anterior cortex. So I'm restoring the anterior compartment. I don't think we've really paid enough attention to the anterior compartment of the knee, the patellofemoral joint, as well as restore the posterior condylar offset. So if I pick the right shape and the right size and I restore the femur, um, I think that um, I have a better balanced knee and um, I'm finding that my outcomes have been um, a better you know, with that uh, with that concept of anatomic referencing. So I have no compromise in the position of my uh, my femoral component. Now, Dr. Scudero, I've heard Dr. Benner talk about this frequently and more so when we were talking about kinematic alignment last week. The worry is that there's going to be varus collapse with KA in the long term. Is there any literature that you're aware of that supports kinematic alignment in the long term, or have we really even followed it long enough to determine that? So I, I don't think we followed it uh, long enough. Um, Steve Howell has presented some of his long, longer-term data, I think, now at about 10 years. I'm sure Steve talked about that. But what I'm just concerned about is, you know, drifting off of that uh, three degrees of varus, how, how much varus would you accept in the tibia? Because we know that when implants fail, they do fail into varus. The bone gets weaker, they start to collapse. 
And that becomes a major problem. So I don't want to put myself in that position early on by putting the knee into a few degrees of varus. And it gets back to what we mentioned earlier about what's the ideal parameters and you know what are the guardrails and how far we go out. You know, it's always interesting. And I told this to uh, Steve at one point. We're on the we we're debating each other at one of the meetings. You know, if you think about when the knee fails into varus and you go to do a revision, what alignment do you choose? The alignment you choose is to restore the mechanical axis. So why didn't you start there in the first place? Because the revision systems are designed, you know, with stem extensions to support the bone, and that's to restore it into the mechanical axis. So, you know, varus subsidence is probably one of the most common uh, failure mechanisms of the, uh, of the tibial component. Yeah, and that's something we did. We did ask Steve about, and as I'm sure you've heard him talk about, he, it, it's his position that he thinks varus collapse is caused by not taking care of, not not avoided by mechanical alignment, especially because on the femoral side that we've taken the knee out of a little bit of normal femoral valgus, and by putting it back at five degrees or six degrees or whatever whatever one you want to put it at, that that uh, will get in line with the femoral middle of the femoral head and the middle of the of the, of the distal femur, that that puts the knee in relative varus and and causes medial collapse. Now, one thing I have heard him talk about, and I know he had a, he had a study that talked about this, was increases in the posterior contact pressures leading to like some cantilever forces on tibial components and causing some posterior uh, tibial collapse. To me, that's a to me that's a potential problem. I don't like when I see knees collapse posteriorly when I'm going to do revisions because it's not a good way to augment that. As you know, you you either you either have to get it up off bone and just let and just fill it with cement, or uh, you know you don't really have femoral resections that you can put back there and screw to the back of the tibia to augment that. Um, you know, and and or you have to cut all the way down and potentially take several millimeters of anterior bone uh, in order to flatten things out and end up end up with a with a pretty large insert as a result. So uh, I don't like varus collapse either, but uh, I, de- I don't like posterior collapse. And I definitely don't want that to be the next uh, way that we see tibial components fail with KA uh, and that we end up doing revisions on. Yeah, you know what, though, Ronnie, I think it's also dependent upon your implant choice, though, too, you know, so realize, you know, I'm a posterior stabilized surgeon, uh, you know, and I have a very, uh, you know, conforming uh, articular surface. So I mean, I'm distributing those forces, you know, across that joint in contrast to uh, a CR, you know, surgeon, you know, possibly, you know, MCs and UCs are right in the, right in the middle there and they may be a little bit more accommodating to, uh, you know, a few degrees of varus in the tibia and valgus in the femur. Yeah, listen, I'm not, I'm not saying that he's absolutely wrong. I just don't think it's the, uh, the right approach that I've taken. I just haven't seen uh, enough uh, uh, durability of these implants over time. Um, but I think the implant choice is going to be one of the factors that come into play. So before we started recording tonight, I mentioned that I spent early parts of my career as a physical therapist, and I've seen countless post-op total knees here, and, and obviously they're they're all Rodney's patients with mechanical alignment. But I wanted to get your thoughts on the, the rehab process post-operatively in terms of mechanical alignment versus kinematic alignment, and do you see any pros or cons either way, especially when you get into those, those patients like Rodney was talking about that he operated on this morning, somebody that does have 16-degree varus and 16-degree flexion contracture. So I just want your thoughts on what, you, what you're seeing post-operatively from a rehab standpoint, and if there's any advantage one way or the the other 
You know, when you consider alignment and uh, rehab protocols, uh, you know, I, we're in a rapid recovery program. I mean, we do same-day surgery, short stay. I mean, most of our patients uh, go home either late that afternoon or the majority go home by the morning. Um, and we have them up and ambulating um, right after surgery within a couple of hours. So I really haven't seen any, you know, difference. I mean, we've got a very structured uh, program for our patients to get their uh, motion, get their strength up, and it's early mobility. I, I can't tell you that uh, my recovery program with mechanical alignment is any better than Steve's with, uh, you know, his kinematic alignment. I think it really is uh, dependent upon good surgical technique, a well-balanced knee. You know, we, we talk about alignment, but at the end of the day, what you want is a well-balanced knee that's stable where you've restored the patient's range of motion. Okay, and I think that is truly what our outcome is in the short term and what our long term outcome is durability of the implant, restoration of function early, durability of the implant to achieve, you know, patient satisfaction. The recovery programs, we're, we're all advancing our patients quickly. We're not, it's not like years ago where, you know, we've had them on bed rest. I mean, the, the, the rapid recovery programs, the physical therapy programs are much more accelerated. And with same day surgery, we're getting them up and out right away. We, we've improved our pain management. We've improved our patient optimization. You know, so we're able to move these patients uh, quicker. And I, I can't tout one over the other, you know, and I would hope that the kinematic, I hope Steve hasn't doubted, you know, kinematic alignment over mechanical alignment for a more rapid recovery. I think just a well done knee, you know, should have, you know, a good outcome. You know, I, I, I'm laughing because I've been around long enough that uh, back when I was a fellow in my early years, we were debating uh, CR versus uh, PS knees, you know, and which one was better. I remember the battles between uh, New York and Boston and New York and Chicago, you know, and now at the end of the day, you know, the market is still split 50-50, maybe shifting a little bit more to the uh, MC at the expense of uh, PS. Uh, but that battle of, of implants has pretty much died down. And now all of a sudden, you know, we're having this, you know, debate on, you know, kinematic personal alignment versus mechanical alignment. I would venture to say at the end of the day, we're going to come back and say it doesn't matter as long as you have a well-balanced knee that's stable and has a good functional range of motion achieving, you know, patient satisfaction. I think truly that is where we're going to go. The, what's what's driving this to is technology because we can with robotics and computer navigation and even our handheld accelerometers you know we can make little subtle adjustments in the alignment and we can say this knee we've just put back you know to in constitutional varus if you know we go back and think about those those studies technology is allowing us to do some of this uh, and that's why we're having this uh, this debate but again, I think this is going to be ongoing for a while until we have long-term outcomes that would show one yeah. more one that would be superior over the other. And I, my guess is, at the end of the day, it's going to be the same, and it's going to be an outcome very similar to the PSCR debate, you know, that we had in the uh, '90s. 
Yeah, honestly, that's another one that I it's a few something I'm going to probably text you about in the future when I want to talk when I want to tackle that question on here whether whether people with that are doing uh you know medial congruent total knees versus still doing CR knees or doing PS knees like you and I do. Uh, and definitely a conversation for another day. And, and maybe this next question is too, but uh, I asked it to Steve, so I'll ask you as well. What, my, my feeling is one one of the biggest reasons that I see people come in to see me for another opinion on a bad total knee that was done elsewhere that is not functioning well and is, is still painful is component rotation. I revise a lot of knees for pretty significant component malrotation. And um, in a uh, to me, that's one of the really missed alignment parameters that are leading to a lot of these patients that have good-looking x-rays from a coronal and sagittal alignment, uh, but they're still unhappy. And, and I've had really good results with revising those people uh, if we can't get them better with non-surgical treatment. And and after changing their rotation, especially on the tibial side, pretty significantly, um, that, that they achieve really good results. So how, how do you reconcile component rotation uh, in amongst all this talk about coronal alignment with K versus mechanical alignment? You know, Rodney, I think you got to get it right the first time, you know, and really understand uh, the rotational alignment of the femur as well as the uh, tibial component. You know, I still look at the uh, AP axis of the femur. I look at the epicondylar axis and, you know, with the instrument systems, whether it's, you know, three degrees, five degrees of rotation, but I'm, I'm also confirming everything on the femoral side with the anatomic landmarks. And, you know, and again, on the uh, tibial side, you know, looking at the anatomical landmarks, you know, with the implant system I use, uh, the tibial component is anatomically designed so I could get the best coverage, you know, with the right rotation. Um, you're right, you know, malrotation of uh, one or both of the components, you know, can uh, lead to, uh, you know, mechanical failure of the implant. What I'm seeing more, though, is uh, instability. I see a lot of cases of flexion instability and mid-flexion instability, and many times it's due to malposition of the femoral component, you know, and that's, uh, that's something I address. Just to get back to the whole issue of, uh, you know, kinematic alignment that's, that Steve probably spoke about in his alignment, he'll accept some internal rotation of the femoral component, you know, and I'm just, yes. I'm just very, very concerned about that, you know. And Not only much. accept it, but put it there on, on, on purpose. Take, yeah, take, no, know, absolutely, take, yeah. He, he, he talks about externally rotating the femoral component as a, as a bad idea uh, and, and pr- pretty much said exactly that when we talked to him. Yeah, and I think internally rotating is a worse idea. You know, and that really you the, the femoral component should be aligned with the uh, with the trochlear and getting the right you know balance of the uh, of mm-hmm. the flexion space. And the problem is, they're internally rotating it throws off your patellofemoral kinematics. And there's been uh, studies that have shown that you know it's contrary yeah. to what Steve is professing. Internal rotation of the femoral component is not a good idea. It's not a yeah. good idea. It leads to uh, Flexion instability, it leads to even stiffness. You know, Kelly Vince reported mm-hmm. on internal rotation of the femoral component with, with stiffness, but it also leads to abnormalities in the patellofemoral kinematic. So, I mean, there's so many things going against it that I would just uh, uh, shy away from even considering that. Well, any final thoughts? We've talked about all the questions that Scott and I wanted to ask tonight, and uh, and, and I, th- I just wanted to, as a kind of a wrap up, what uh, what are the take home messages that you would tell people as they are reading things about kinematic alignment, as they're going to meetings and hearing 
people talk about it, trying to think about whether they want to implement it themselves. What are your take home points for those surgeons that are that are trying to put all this together? You know, I think what's important, um, you know, for your uh, for your viewers and your listeners is that uh, mechanical alignment is not a mortal sin. You know, I think there are a lot of challenges uh, to the tenets of mechanical alignment right now. I have an editorial coming out in the uh, Journal of Arthroplasty on this in an upcoming uh, issue with uh, Mike Mont. And, uh, you know, my feeling is that, you know, be, you know, be open minded, but don't uh, don't throw away in mechanical alignment as a very sound principle in doing your uh, total knee replacement. The most important thing is, as I've mentioned earlier, is getting a well-balanced knee that's stable with good range of motion. The whole concept of, uh, you know, personalized alignment, kinematic alignment uh, needs to be further investigated. We need to look at uh, more long-term studies and decide what are the parameters, what are our guide rails if we want to deviate, you know, from the mechanical alignment. And I think that remembering the basic principles of mechanical alignment, that you do need to do some soft tissue releases. Don't be fearful of releasing the soft tissues following proper technique. And you should have a uh, very predictable and durable outcome with your total knee replacement. Great stuff. Well, thanks, Dr. Scuderi, again for coming on and uh, on on our show and, and taking some time for us. We really appreciate this, and uh, you know that's uh, something we some of these concepts we want to we want to hit in the future. We'll, we'll we may ask your perspective again. So thank you for doing this. Really enjoyed catching up with you and uh, and hearing your thoughts on things. No, happy to do it, Rodney. Anytime. I always enjoy sitting back and uh, talking about things like this. You know, it's uh, it's good to reflect back on. Uh, a lot of the basic principles Jonas will taught both of us, you know, and uh, and carry on with that. As always, if you want to get a hold of us, you can hit us up on our social media accounts, Twitter and Instagram at the SKC Podcast. You can visit our SKC Podcast YouTube and Facebook pages or email us at the SKC Podcast at gmail.com. And we will see you guys next week. Mm-hmm.